In the 1550s, the good people of England were jostled back and forth by religious extremism. They were put under great strain by visitations of disease and famine, and lived under the shadow of constant uncertainty. This was true for all, from the lowliest peasant to those enjoying the benefits that came with wealth and status. And it was true also for one individual in particular, and a royal at that, Mary's half-sister Elizabeth. The daughter of Anne Boleyn spent much of her time preparing for a future that was unlikely to come. She was greatly resented by the Queen because of her mother's role in Henry's divorce from Mary's mother, Catherine of Aragon. More problematic still, Elizabeth had been raised a Protestant. There was no shortage of powerful individuals at court who desired her execution, as she would always represent a challenge to Mary, and thus a challenge to the success of the Catholic Church. So Elizabeth spent her days studying poetry, languages, politics, and rhetoric. Preparation for a day that may never come, and all the while wondering if and when she might make the walk to the gallows, just like her mother had done. All seemed resolved when Mary appeared to be with child, her belly swelling with a potential Tudor heir, and with this, security for the dynasty and the Catholic faith. But it was not to be. Mary was not with child, but had stomach cancer. Throughout her painful last days, she wavered back and forth between making her half-sister her heir and sending her to the executioner's block. In the end, it was heir that won out, and with her death, a young woman would ascend the throne to rule a divided kingdom, to rule in a man's world, and as we will see, she was more than up to the challenge. Well, how did she do it? How did Elizabeth not only survive, but reign for 45 years? How did she bring prosperity to the realm, seeing off threats from abroad, establishing the groundwork for overseas exploration and the development of the British Empire, and the creation of a Protestant nation? There's so much we could examine in answering this question, but we will focus upon just um, one particular factor to highlight a key aspect of the There is so much we could examine in answering this question, but we will focus upon just one to highlight a key aspect of Elizabeth's reign and success. There is so much we could examine in answering this question, but we will focus upon just a few to highlight a key aspect of Elizabeth's reign and her success. To begin, she built upon what went before. She became a master at manipulation, and with her trusted advisors created a cult of personality which served her well. To demonstrate this, we will first look at one of my favorite subjects from the period, chivalry. It should not surprise us to find an interest in chivalry and jousting and other knightly pursuits during the Tudor period, since when the Tudor dynasty was established in 1485, England was still medieval. Knights still had a role to play in society and in war, although this was changing dramatically due to the applications of gunpowder and the cannons that came with it. Tournaments were still extremely popular, but how and why they were held was changing. What we will see is that during the Tudor period, the concept of chivalry and all that it entailed was alive and well. It should come as no surprise that chivalry was an important part of Henry VIII's reign. One need look no further than the Field of the Cloth of Gold, held in France in 1520. A recent writer has described the Field of Cloth of Gold as, quote, the most elaborate chivalric spectacle imaginable, and the center of activity was the tilt yard, constructed for the occasion. Several days of the conference were given over to jousting, fighting at the barriers, and other chivalric exercises performed in the presence and under the judgment of the queens of England and France. 
Perhaps the most revealing detail is the tree of chivalry, which was erected within the tilt yard. It was elaborately constructed of damask and cloth of gold, and served as a place for Henry and Francis and the other knights who participated in the tilting to display shields in which they proclaimed the identity they had assumed for the tourney. The Tree of Honour alluded to many famous tournaments throughout Europe and to innumerable combats and adventures recorded in romances from the time of Chrétien de Troyes onwards. So the Field of the Cloth of Gold had specifically been designed to display Henry as the perfect chivalric prince, who by his exploits would take his rightful place along the heroes of the past. Now, as Henry VIII's court was still in many ways medieval, we should perhaps not be surprised that he and his courtiers maintained a fascination with jousting and chivalric ideals. However, the court of Elizabeth is widely recognized as being much different. By 1558, when Elizabeth ascends to the throne, England had moved out of the medieval period and into the early modern era. Elizabeth's court was very much a Renaissance court. It was refined, it was cultured, it was less rough than Henry's. Yet, as we will see, chivalry and all that it entailed arguably played a more prominent role than it had during the reign of Henry VIII. During the reign of Queen Elizabeth, there was an interest in chivalry from the perspective of society looking back on what had been, on celebrating the past glory of England. Interest in chivalric pursuits, the tournament, the stories of King Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table continued to be of great interest. However, the real significance of the continued fascination with chivalry was how it was manipulated, embellished, and modified to reflect upon the monarch herself. Elizabeth came to the throne as a young woman who by all rights should not have been there. She was third in line behind her half-brother Edward and her half-sister Mary. Protestant herself, Elizabeth spent much of her early life under suspicion, imprisoned, and hovering near the executioner's block. When Mary died and Elizabeth came to the throne, England had been through several decades of religious upheaval and uncertainty, social unrest, and threats from abroad. Elizabeth was therefore in a very tenuous position, a young woman ruling in a man's world amidst great religious intrigue. How, then, could she secure the throne? Well, there are many different ways that Elizabeth and her counselors worked to establish her as the rightful monarch. The one that is of interest to us is, of course, the manipulation of chivalric ideals, something which Elizabeth and her supporters used effectively to establish her not only as rightful heir, but as a virgin queen. We get our first glimpse of Elizabethan chivalry from the Tudor historian Hollinshed, who described a scene at Elizabeth's coronation banquet. Quote, In the meantime, whilst her grace sat at dinner, Sir Edward Dimmock, knight, her champion by office came riding into the hall in fair, complete armor, mounted upon a beautiful courser, richly trapped in cloth of gold, entered the hall, and in the midst thereof cast down his gauntlet, with offer to fight with him in her quarrel, that should deny her to be the righteous and lawful queen of the realm. The queen, taking a cup of gold full of wine, drank to him thereof and sent it to him for his fee. Displays of chivalry continued and increasingly became associated with Elizabeth. Soon after her coming to power, it became customary to hold accession day celebrations every November 17th, the day that she took the throne. These celebrations provided many opportunities for individuals to demonstrate their support through acts of chivalry. For example, these annual exercises in arms solemnized the 17th day of November were first begun and occasioned by the right virtuous and honorable Sir Henry Lee, master of Her Highness's armories, now deservedly knight of the most noble order, 
who of his great zeal and earnest desire to eternize the glory of her majesty's court in the beginning of her happy reign voluntarily vowed during his life to present himself at the tilt armed the day aforesaid yearly there to perform in honour of her sacred majesty the promise he formerly made whereupon the lords and gentlemen of the said court incited by so worthy an example determined to continue that custom and have ever since yearly assembled in arms accordingly so what we have here is the individual in sir henry lee establishing a tradition of tilting on elizabeth's accession day to honour and protect the queen and in doing so he no doubt was gaining the queen's favour but also he was encouraging others to do so these accession day tilts were elaborate spectacles which drew upon myth and romance Knights would dress up in costume, disguising themselves as wild men, or a phoenix, or a frozen knight, other fantastical characters. In the tilt of 1584, we're told that tilters entered the tilt yard adjoining Whitehall Palace in pairs with trumpets blowing. Combatants had their servants clad in different colors, disguised as savages or other wild figures. Others had horse manes on their heads, and the horses also were decorated, some equipped to look like elephants. Many of the tilt's combatants dramatized themselves as knights of romance, drawing heavily upon Arthurian literature. And of course, at the center of each spectacle sat the queen. We see that in some poetry from the time this was written by the Earl of Essex. Seated between the old world and the new, a land there is no other may touch, where reigns a queen in peace and honor true, Stories or fables do describe no such. Never did Atlas such a burden bear, as she in holding up the world oppressed, supplying with her virtue everywhere, weakness of friends, errors of servants best. No nation breeds a warmer blood for war, and yet she calms them with her majesty. No age have ever wit refined so far, and yet she calms them by her policy. To her thy son must make his sacrifice, if he will have the morning of his eyes." So very significant, putting Elizabeth at the center of this spectacle, of each of these spectacles on her Ascension Day, where she is the center, she is the one between the old world and the new, creating something different, something that all could revel in. Another celebration with chivalric associations was St. George's Day celebrations. St. George, the patron saint of England, was popular throughout Europe during the Middle Ages, gaining great popularity in England during the Crusades. St. George was reputedly a Christian who joined the Roman army in the early 4th century. He is said to have been imprisoned, tortured, and finally martyred by the Emperor Diocletian for declaring himself a Christian. Popular legend has it that before his death he had liberated the Libyan city of Selene from a terrible dragon. To placate the dragon, the people began feeding it their sheep. When they ran out of sheep, they began feeding the dragon their children until only one remained, a princess. As the dragon was about to eat the princess, George happened by, drew his sword, crossed himself, and slew the dragon. During the Crusades, St. George was increasingly associated with the protection of soldiers, and more specifically, the chivalric orders in Aragon, Genoa, Hungary, and the Holy Roman Emperor. During the 1340s, Edward III adopted the saint as the patron of the newly created chivalric order of the Garter. During the Hundred Years' War, English armies went forth into battle, carrying the cross of St. George before them. And in 1415, St. George's Day, April 23rd, became an official church holy day. Throughout England, St. George's Day festivities were celebrated in a variety of ways. 
In the countryside, the saint's day was marked by the performance of a play or their similar entertainment, and it almost always involved a dragon. Many towns held processions or parades where someone would dress up as the saint, and often it would end in a feast and mass being said. Norwich is known to have had the most elaborate celebration with someone dressing up as the saint in, quote, a coat of armor befitting a knight. Celebrations changed considerably over the 16th century. Under Henry VIII, many religious festivals disappeared as he and the kingdom vacillated between Catholicism and the new Reformed religion. Under Edward, a fervent Protestant ceremonies, including St. George's Day, came under attack. Protestant reformers saw saints' days as superstitious and dangerous, as they were associated with drunkenness and disorder. When Mary came to the throne in 1553, saints' days were welcomed back. But with Elizabeth, a more moderate Protestant, we once again begin to see saints' days and other religious holidays come under attack, although St. George's Day remains. It remained by becoming more secular and increasingly being associated with the monarchy. By the later stages of Elizabeth's reign, the religious elements had disappeared. Fools and other entertainments had been added, and the dragon was now nicknamed Snap, not exactly the fearful creature of the old legend. By the early 17th century, St. George's Day had all been but transformed, and it was closely associated with the, quote, dignity and honor of the English monarchy. Christmas holidays were another occasion where chivalric displays often with knights fighting and foot combats, sword fighting, uh, took place. Of course, we find significant elements of chivalry in the Tudor literature, such as Spencer's The Fairy Queen. In Canto 10 of Book 2, Spencer has Prince Arthur sit down to read A History of the Kings of Britain. In this, Elizabeth becomes the direct descendant and heir to the chivalric lineage Arthur discovers, so that in allegorical terms, Arthur's chivalric quest for the Fairy Queen in the poem represents the movement of British history towards Elizabeth Tudor. The histories of Fairyland and the land of chivalry thus combine to form a history of England which culminates, and gloriously so, in the person of Elizabeth, both the direct descendant of the historic Arthur and the object of his chivalric quest in the poem for perfect virtue. Well, what's the significance of this? Well, it's central to the development of the cult of the Virgin. Elizabeth's reign was a period of immense change, where England was transformed into a Protestant nation. An easy transition saw great change in religious observance and popular pastimes. With the tearing down of the Catholic faith came a corresponding destruction of Catholic ceremonies, festivals, and holidays. The religious calendar changed dramatically. Some have argued that the chivalric festivals such as the Accession Day tilts and St. George's Day celebrations were deliberately offered as a substitute for the old Popish saints' days and holidays. A passion for the trappings of chivalry and court spectacles and pageantry was not unique to England and something that could be found throughout many of Europe's monarchies. The rise of national monarchies during the 16th century used chivalry and its religious traditions to focus religious loyalties on the national monarch. But in Elizabethan England, the ceremonial of chivalry was one of the few important traditional forms of pageantry that survived the Reformation, as popular pastimes, especially those with religious connotations, came under censorship from the government and religious reformers. The chivalric ceremonies that remained did so because they had taken on increased importance to the monarchy. Displays of chivalry provided some 
with the means of displaying their loyalty. They provided a rallying point for the nation around its queen, a queen who replaced the Virgin Mary as the very embodiment of virtue.